Well, as many of you know, I have the great privilege of being a chaplain in the Connecticut Air National Guard, which includes facilitating trainings to make sure our airmen are healthy, spiritually, emotionally, and relationally, particularly with their wife and their kids. So this past weekend, I was up at the Great Wolf Lodge in Massachusetts to help lead a conference on the seven habits of highly effective families, which is curriculum focused on keeping family relationships healthy. But why is that necessary? Well, because guys get deployed for six months to a year, so husbands and fathers are away from their wife and kids, and if family relationships aren't strong, then families struggle and airmen can't focus on their job, namely protecting the American people from enemies foreign and domestic. So deployments, as you can imagine, are difficult. They're hard, which is also why reunions are so sweet. Now, I don't know about you, but I absolutely love those videos where soldiers come home from war and surprise their kids. Maybe it's a sporting event or at a friend's house or after school when the dad suddenly comes around the corner and the kids' eyes light up and they go running to their dad. One video I remember, it was during a school assembly and the school administrator announced the airman's presence in front of the entire school as he comes walking around the corner. It was fantastic. The whole school went crazy as the kid comes running out of the stands to jump into his dad's arms. Every time, without exception, I get tears in my eyes because the kids are totally undone. Most recently... No doubt, as a result of my officer training school, I've been thinking about those same events, but I've been thinking about them from the dad's perspective. And I've recognized those events require tons of planning, lots of details, and massive organization just to pull them off. And the dad's just as excited to be with the wife and kids as the wife and kids are to be with the dad. So despite miles of separation and no doubt the reality of war, he's been planning for months and waiting with eager anticipation just to be in the presence of his wife and his kids. Now just think about that in light of our loving heavenly father. I mean, do you realize the God of heaven longs to be with his sons and his daughters? Just like a soldier wants to be with his kids. And the Lord Jesus deeply desires to be present with his bride, the church, for all eternity. That the God of all creation wants to be with us, dwelling in our midst, where he will be our God and we will be his people. God's presence on full display this morning. God dwelling in the presence of his people that even though we've been separated as a result of a spiritual war that is raging, the reality of our own sin, he's been carefully planning, working the details, massive organization so that sinful people can dwell in the presence of a holy God through the sacrifice of Christ who is the light and life of all those 
who believe. That's where we're going this morning. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 25. It's on page 65 if you're using one of the Bibles and the chairs in front of you. Also want to encourage you to grab my outline, have it right there in your Bible. You're going to look at that outline. You're going to say, boy, there's a lot of points on there, and there definitely are. We are going to spend the majority of our time in point number one. want you to know that, and there are a lot of details for us to go through, but those details are necessary and important for the punchline as we make our way through the sermon this morning. As you're turning, let me remind you of where we're at in the book of Exodus. Exodus 1, 1 to 15, 21 highlights that God is a God who saves. Then the second half of the book, that God is a God who sanctifies, desiring a people who trust God's provision, a people who keep God's law, and now Exodus 25 all the way to Exodus 40, a people who dwell in God's presence. So God not only saves Israel, but officially enters into covenant with her. That's what we saw last week, Exodus 24, where God's relationship with Israel is formalized. If you remember, Richie likened it to a wedding ceremony. So in the analogy, God is the bridegroom and Israel is the bride. So God saved her, revealed himself to her, and rescued her so that she might be his treasured possession, his beautiful bride. And Israel, in response, promised to be a faithful covenant partner. That's why she declared all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So all of that sets the stage for today. Because in the same way that it would be strange for a couple to get married and then not have the husband live with his wife, it would be strange for God to enter into covenant with Israel and then not dwell in the presence of his people. Does that make sense? Hence, we're given the tabernacle, and the plan for God to dwell in the midst of his people. So if you would, follow along as I read Exodus 25, verses 1 to 9. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel, that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. This is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat hair, tan ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, and stones for setting, for the ephod and the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary, so a, a tabernacle, why? So that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. First thing you need to notice is how the people provide the resources. So number one, contributions from the people. Just think about that for a moment. Because Israel was enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. So quick question, do slaves have resources like this? Do they have resources to build a tabernacle? Gold, silver, bronze, acacia wood, and gems, and fabric of every color under the sun. Do they have that kind of stuff? No. Well, then how did they get that stuff? Well, remember, God instructed them to plunder the Egyptians. So essentially, all this stuff is God-given. Yet, God gives them the opportunity to willingly, joyfully, voluntarily contribute to the cause. So this is not a forced offering, but a choice offering. 
So God's not saying you have to. God is saying you get to. Look again at verse 2. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution. So not forced to contribute, but allowed to contribute from resources that were given to them by God. Okay, immediate application. Because the same is true of us today, isn't it? Paul says there's nothing you have that you have not received. There's not a dollar in your pocket or a thing that you own. Not a house, not a car, not a bed, not a penny that isn't the result of God's grace to you. God's the one who gives you life and breath and every good thing. Your gifting and your ability, your personality and your relationships, your opportunities and even your desires. Yet he never forces you to give. He commands you to give, but he doesn't force you. So the question is, is that how you think about giving? That it's an opportunity to give, to contribute, to participate in God's great work of redemption, the work of the gospel in people's lives so that his presence might be known to all the peoples in the world. Rather than being forced, you have the opportunity, you have the privilege to give. Number one, contribution from the people. Number two, purpose of the tabernacle. Look at verse eight. The purpose is so clearly stated. Let them make for me a sanctuary so that I may dwell in their midst. Let that sink in. The God of all creation, the God of heaven and earth who created all things wants to dwell with these people. A people who, by the way, aren't anything special. In fact, they're wicked sinners. Just a few chapters back, grumbling and complaining about anything and everything, even threatening to stone Moses, their mediator. And yet here's God setting his love and his affection on them, declaring that he wants to dwell in their presence. Which is why verse 9 is so important. God says, exactly as I show you, concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. So the Lord is incredibly clear here that this tabernacle must be built according to these specifications. Now why is that? Well, number one, the tabernacle includes all sorts of details, as we'll see, that point us back to the Garden of Eden, which makes total sense because that's the first place where God dwelt with his people. Number two, Hebrews 8.5 tells us specifically that the tabernacle is patterned after God's dwelling place in heaven. So it not only points backward, it also points forward. And then three, most importantly, these specifics all of the details that we're going to look at, the layout, the items, the material, all of it teaches us how a holy God can dwell in the midst of a sinful people, which means they all point forward in some way to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's only through him, through faith in him, ultimately, that sinful people can dwell in the presence of a holy God. So what's the takeaway even here? 
These details are necessary. These details are God-given in all of their particulars so that we might see the Lord Jesus with greater glowing, growing clarity. Which brings us to B. Here we go. The details of the tabernacle, starting with number one, the Ark of the Covenant. Follow along. Lots of details. Just telling you. We're going to walk through all of them. Details. But don't lose track of why. That we might see Jesus. Okay. Verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length. A cubit and a half its breadth. And a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall also make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece, on one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. Verse 22, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Let me just start by putting up a picture. Yes, we have pictures this morning. Praise God. Thank you so much. PowerPoint is here. Here's what this item looked like. It's essentially a rectangular box coated in gold with a solid gold top that has two cherubims facing each other, and the gold top is what the text calls the mercy seat. For clarity, seat not in the sense of a place for you to sit down, but as a location. So the location of mercy or the place of mercy, more literally translated the place of atonement. Now to understand its function, you need to know where it's located in the tabernacle and how this whole thing is set up. So let me show you a picture of the court of tabernacle, which is so helpful to understand the structure of our passage. Because the text is literally taking us from inside the Holy of Holies, and it's gonna, so you're going to see this in the structures we walk through it. You can see it in your outline, okay? Look, we got PowerPoint and I got this. Wow, this, like we're going to have some fun this morning, right? Okay, so it's going to take us from the Holy of Holies outside into the holy place and then to the courtyard. So we're going to talk about the altar, and we're going to talk about uh, the table of presents, the, the candle, Right? And it's going to move from the inside out. That's all very purposeful. See it right there on your outline. Ark of the Covenants in the Holy of Holies. Table for bread, golden lampstain, holy place. Here's the curtain and the framework. You see it? Bronze altar. That's in the court of the tabernacle. At this point, we're going to zoom in on the tabernacle. 
right? So you can see, we'll just do the tabernacle, okay? So the priests enter in. As you can see, there's a curtain separating right here, the holy place from the holy of holies or the most holy place. And it's in the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. So this is the place where God dwells, where he would be most present and the place where God meets with man. Verse 22 says, there I will meet with you. There I will speak with you. Remember, this is God's design. So this is God's plan, his layout to be the throne room of the king of the universe. That's what it is, which is why scripture refers to God as a king enthroned above the cherubim. And what is the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant is his footstool. So here's the question. What do we learn about God's presence from the Ark of the Covenant? Well, how about the fact that inside the Ark of the Covenant is the Ten Commandments? which means God expects his people to obey his commands. So this is, this is how we're called to relate to him. This is his expectation that we would be a people who obey his commands. We also learn that his presence is majestic and is mighty. The ark is made of pure gold, the mercy seat, pure gold, the cherubim, pure gold. All of that highlights his majesty. And the cherubim are significant. Right? Because they're first seen in the Garden of Eden. If you remember, Genesis 3.24 tells us that after God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, heading east, by the way, that'll be important in just a second, he placed the cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life. So here they are again, guardians of the sacred, attendants to the Almighty. Did you notice how the cherubim are not lifting their eyes. They're facing one another, but their eyes are not up. Instead, their eyes are staring at the mercy seat. Why is that? Because God's presence is too holy, too majestic, too mighty for them even to look at him. So God is both majestic and God is mighty. You see that in the Ark of the Covenant. But you also see that God is merciful. I mean, how awesome is it that not only does the Ark of the Covenant contain the Ten Commandments showing us that God's people must obey God's law, but it's covered by what? A mercy seat. Demonstrating that God has graciously made a way for his law-breaking people to be dealt with through mercy rather than judgment and condemnation. Because once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies to make atonement for sin. And how would he do that? By sprinkling blood on the mercy seat. First for his own sin and then for the sin of the people. So the Ark of the Covenant represents divine provision reconciliation between God and man. It's how sin and the separation sin causes between God and man can be dealt with through mercy and grace and the opportunity for sinful man to receive forgiveness. And as a result, it points forward to the Lord Jesus. He's the ultimate place where God meets man. The ultimate combination of both law and grace, righteousness in his life and mercy through his death. More on that in a moment. Instead, let's keep reading. Number two, the table for bread. Follow along as I read verses 23 to 30. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall, it be, shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. 
You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the corners, the four corners and its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. Notice verse 30. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Now again, we'll start with a picture. Table for the bread of presence is a table made of acacia wood overlaid with gold with rings for poles so that it can be carried. The table is not in the holy of holies, but it's located in the holy place. But what's most important for us to notice is not the table itself, but what's on the table, namely the bread. Leviticus 30, 24 tells us the priests made 12 loaves of bread and set them in two piles, which of course represents the 12 tribes of Israel. But this bread, as it's called in verse 30, the bread of the presence But whose presence? The Lord's presence. So it represents his presence and his provision for his people, all of his people. So it symbolizes not only the reality that God is with them, but that God cares for them and will meet their daily needs. Give us this day our daily bread including raining down manna from heaven each day, every day, God's presence, God's provision, that he will literally take care of their every need. Now just think about that. Bread from heaven, taking care of every single physical and spiritual need for all of God's people. Who does that make you think of? Jesus. More on that in a moment. Let's read on. Number three, the golden lampstand, verses 31 to 40. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out one side, and three branches of the lampstand out the other side. Three cups make made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold." You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. Again, notice verse 40. See that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. So the specific pattern that God gives to Moses during his 40 days and his 40 nights on the mountain. Again, we'll start with a picture. Here's what the golden lampstand looked like. So the lampstand was in the holy place, opposite the table with the bread of presence, and its function was to provide light 
in the midst of pitch black tabernacle, right? It's an enclosed area. It's dark in there, so it's functional. It provides light in the tabernacle. What you need to understand is that this light stand, this lamp stand is designed to look like something. So it, it looks like a tree. So it's got a trunk with three branches coming out one side, three branches coming out the other. It's clearly got flowering, you know, right? The flowering almond tree. What's the significance of all of that? Why does that matter? Well, it matters because it's pointing back to the Garden of Eden. It's pointing specifically to the tree of life. So the place where God originally dwelt with man before sin entered the world and fellowship was shattered. So this tree, this lampstand, is a constant reminder that in the tabernacle, God again dwells with his people. Not in his fullness, obviously, this is still temporary, but we're moving forward in God's great work of redemption. And the lampstand is a reminder that God's presence, that in God's presence, there is both light and life. Both ideas, as you know, come to their ultimate fulfillment in who? In Jesus. Again, we'll wait to go there. Number four, the curtains and the framework. I'm not gonna actually read chapter 26, but instead I'm gonna summarize it. But I will put up a picture while I explain. If you read through chapter 26, you're gonna see verses one to 14 describe the different layers of curtains that cover the tabernacle. Then verses 15 to 30 describe the framework, the structure, and the direction that the tabernacle is facing. So the tabernacle is 40 feet long by 15 feet wide, and its framework is all overlaid with gold. It also has five bars that pass through the wings, which keep the structure perfectly solid. Right? Some of you are wondering, is that going to stand up? Yes, it's going to stand up. The way God designed it, it's perfectly solid. But there's no roof. Instead, the top was covered by different colored cloth and animal skins. In addition, these verses clarify for us the direction of the tabernacle, making it crystal clear over and over and over again that the Holy of Holies is facing west. Which means that if you're leaving the tabernacle, you're heading east. And if you're heading east, then you're heading away from God's presence, which is identical to the orientation of the Garden of Eden. As I said, very specific, very purposeful, very intentional directions given to us by God himself. Then verses 31 and 35 describe the curtain that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. So the place where the ark was located, the throne room of God, the place where God dwells, that curtain was special for a number of reasons. Number one, it makes the Holy of Holies, right? I said it was 15 by 45. Well, when you put that curtain in place, the Holy of Holies becomes a perfect cube. So it's 15 by 15. So it's a perfect place for a perfect God to dwell in all of his perfection. Number two, the curtains were beautiful, made of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn woven together with fine linen and were super thick. So more like a heavy rug than a piece of material. And the curtain has massive cherubim embroidered on the front. Again, the details are awesome. 
right? The, the material makes it clear that it is no small thing for you to come into the presence of a holy God. This isn't a little piece of material that just blows in the wind. No big deal for you to enter. No, this is thick. It is a very big deal to come into the presence of a holy God. You also have the cherubim, right? It's, it's protecting. It, it so reminds you of the Garden of Eden. They were put there at the entrance and the exit. No one allowed back. You, you can't get into his presence. We were cast out of his presence. So just think about this. Although Israel has this unbelievable privilege of God's divine presence right there in their midst, there's no doubt whatsoever that he's holy and therefore access to him is limited. So even though this throne room was right there in the center of the camp, the only person to enter it was the high priest, and he could only go into the Holy of Holies one time a year on the Day of Atonement, passing through the last curtain, through the cherubim, into God's presence. And the only thing that protected him when he got there from his own sin and the sin of the people was blood, which he sprinkled on the mercy seat the place of atonement so that he could be there in God's presence. You see, the overall picture here is one of limited access. So God dwells in the midst of his people, but access is limited because God is holy and man is sinful, which is a perfect transition to number five, the prawn's altar. Look with me at Exodus 27, verses one to eight. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be a square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it's carried. You shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. Now again, here's a picture. So the bronze altar, about seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet tall. Like all the other items associated with the tabernacle, it has poles to be carried. Notice how it's bronze, not gold. Why is that? Well, because it's outside the tabernacle. So it's away from the holy of holies. It's away from God. What's its purpose? Well, altars are for sacrifices. So it's on this altar that sacrifices would be made for all the people all the time. And specifically, anytime they're heading in the direction of God's presence. So God's people can only enter God's presence after their sins have been atonement. Communion with God requires sacrifice. Notice how the altar was the first thing a worshiper would see. We'll show this. Got the picture, right? As soon as you walk into the court, what is the first thing you see? The altar, right? 
We'll come back to this in just a second. Let me quickly cover number six, the court of the tabernacle. After that, we're going to walk through the exact same list, only this time heading from the courtyard to the Holy of Holies and looking through the lens of the New Testament to see how all these details, all of these specifics point us forward to the Lord Jesus. First, skip down to verse 18. So you can see the dimensions of the court of the tabernacle. Verse 18 says, The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, and the breadth 50 cubits, and the height 5 cubits. What does that mean? It means the court is 75 feet wide, 150 feet long, and had walls that were about seven and a half feet high. So we're talking about a courtyard that covered over 10,000 square feet. But what I want you to notice, can we put the picture back up, Brian, is how there's clearly three different areas, right? You have the courtyard, you have the courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies. Now, one commentator makes the connection that this entire structure is, is identical to what just happened at Mount Sinai at Exodus 24. I don't know about you, but last week when I was listening to the sermon, I'm like, I'm struggling. Okay, the people on the outside of the mountain, why are the 70 halfway up? I'm just trying to work that out in my mind. But, but there, right, the majority of God's people were at the bottom. Only 70 people were halfway up. And then ultimately, one, Moses, the mediator, the great high priest, if you will, is the only one in God's presence, well, that's identical to the way it's structured here with the tabernacle. All of God's people are expected, allowed to be in the courtyard, but only the priests, the representatives, can enter the holy place. And just like Moses at Mount Sinai, only the priest, only the mediator, the one can enter the holy of holies to be in God's presence, and that only one time per year. All of that, all those details What's the take-home message? It's this, that God absolutely wants to dwell in the midst of his people. That's his desire. Number one, God's presence promised. So he deeply desires to be our God and for us to be his people. But we also learn that access is limited. At least in the Old Testament, it is limited. Why is that? Because God is holy. We sang it this morning. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Perfect in power, in love, and purity. So God is absolutely holy. And his people are sinful. So access to him must be limited which is why the coming of Christ is so glorious. I mean, we even see it in his name when he comes. He's birthed, right? We celebrate this at Christmas. What do we call him? What's he called? Emmanuel. God with us. So what I want to do now is walk through each of these images and see them through the lens of the New Testament just to see how all these details that God specifically designed point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ, who by definition, number two, is God's presence realized. So let's start with A, the purpose of the tabernacle, because God gave us the purpose, right? He, he gave us the purpose in Exodus 25, 8. God said, let them make a sanctuary. Why? So that I may dwell in their presence. 
So the tabernacle, by definition, is where God meets man. So Jesus has to be the ultimate fulfillment because it's only through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that sinful man can be reconciled to a holy God and dwell in God's presence, not only in the here and now, and certainly not only once a year, but for all eternity. In every detail, as we walk from the courtyard to the holy of holies, confirms that reality that Jesus is be the ultimate fulfillment of the tabernacle. So if you would, in your mind's eye, no PowerPoint now, you gotta picture this. In your mind's eye, we're gonna walk from the courtyard to the Holy of Holies. So walk with me. What is the first thing that you see when you walk into the courtyard? A, the bronze altar. The first thing you see is the altar, which is a constant reminder of Hebrews 9.22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But in your mind's eye, as you're walking, that's not a generic statement, is it? No, that's a very specific statement because it's your specific sins that are the issue. And they're not just sins against humanity in general. They're sins against a holy God. Just like David said, Psalm 51.4, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So we've individually sinned. We've individually broken God's commands. And we've individually disregarded his rules. And we individually have done what is evil and wicked in his sight. We've done our own thing. So as soon as we see the bronze altar, we're reminded we've sinned against the holy God. And we are in desperate need of a substitutionary sacrifice. We are in desperate need of atonement for our individual sin. Then we walk into the holy place and we see the golden lampstand and we see the bread of God's presence. And think about the lampstand. It represents God's provision of light. It represents access to the tree of life. It represents communion with God in the time when God walked in the cool of the day when he was their God and we were his people. And think about how the New Testament picks up on all of that imagery, right? John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world that whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. So to be a person who walks in the light is to be a person who believes in Jesus, who loves Jesus, who trusts Jesus, which means we obey Jesus. We keep Jesus' commands because that's what it means to follow Jesus. And what's the outcome when we don't walk in darkness and we follow Jesus? We have the light of life. Spiritual life, eternal life, resurrection life, which means that we're reconciled to God and we're in a right relationship with him. 
So the lampstand points to Jesus, who is the ultimate source of eternal light and life for God's people, which is identical to number three, the bread of God's presence. I mean, the purpose of the bread is to highlight God's presence and God's provision as well. But what a glorious fulfillment in Christ. John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So Jesus is the ultimate bread of God's presence because he's God in the flesh. That's why he says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But he's not just God's presence, he's also God's provision. Just think about what he said the night before he was betrayed. What was he doing the night before he was betrayed? He's breaking bread. And he's saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is God's provision for you. Not only of light and life and every good thing, physical food and daily sustenance, but his provision of salvation. That only by faith in the Lord Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, can we ever be allowed to dwell in God's presence and experience fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, which is evident and obvious because the next step is into what? The holy of holies. How do you get there? You have to walk through the curtain. Number four, the veil. The veil is what separates the holy place from the holy of holies. Or more specifically, the one item that separates sinful man from total access to a holy God. Because that's what the veil represents. So it highlights the reality in the Old Testament that the Israelites don't have total access to God, but instead they have limited access to God, meaning very limited access. One person, one day, over the course of one year, could ever walk on the other side of this veil. Yet Matthew 27, 51 tells us that when Jesus died on the cross and declared it is finished, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing that now by faith in Christ, we have total access to God, full communion with the Almighty. And we know that's grounded on Christ's death, specifically his shed blood, because of number five, the Ark of the Covenant, because the New Testament tells us that his sacrifice represents him entering the Holy of Holies and offering his own shed blood as the once for all perfect sacrifice to make atonement for our sin. Hebrews 9.25 says, Christ entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Verse 26 says, he appeared once for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus is the one who kept God's law perfectly which makes him the only adequate substitute for our sins. Through his life, the law is fulfilled, and through his death, blood is shed on the mercy seat so that all who believe may enjoy God's presence for all eternity. That's what you see when you walk from the courtyard to the holy of holies. Now, I know that's a lot, you do need to know that the way the structure is set up in the Bible, we had to look at all of that together. Why do we have to do that? 
Because when you look at the structure in Exodus, he takes you from the Holy of Holies all the way out to the courtyard. Look at your Bibles. Where do we go next? Now we're going to talk about the high priest, and we're going to go from the courtyard back into the Holy of Holies. That's purposeful. I know it's a lot. But as we close this morning, there's two things that must be said as we consider number three, God's presence applied. The first is that apart from Christ, God's presence is not a wonderful thing. Apart from Christ, God's presence is not a wonderful thing. I mean, you need to know there, were, there was a very good reason why access to the Holy of Holies and God's presence was limited in the Old Testament. On the Day of Atonement, the one day a year that the high priest was able to enter the Holy of Holies, they would wear very special clothes. Those clothes included bells on their shoes and a rope around their waist. Why was that? Because sinful men die in the presence of a holy God. So when they would walk in, making the offering, their bells would be making noise. They're walking in there. You can hear that they're on the other side of the veil. You hear them in the holy of holies. Then all of a sudden the bells would stop, which is why they had a rope around their waist. Because sinful men die in the presence of a holy God. You know, if there's one thing I can say about our culture this morning is that we've lost our reverence for God. It is so hard for me to try to give you a picture to feel the weight of the holy of holies. God is holy, transcendent, set apart, Sinful men die in the presence of a holy God. Everything in the tabernacle is trying to help you understand the weight of that reality. Sinful men die in the presence of a holy God. Which means that apart from Christ, God's presence is not a wonderful thing. But it doesn't have to be that way for you this morning. If you're here this morning and you have not yet put your faith in Christ... You can do that this morning. Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. He died on the cross. He rose on the third, grade, on the third day. He did that as a once-for-all sacrifice for your sins. You can be reconciled to God. You're a sinful person separated from a holy God, but when you put your faith in Christ, his death is sufficient. He said, it is finished. It is done to the world. Salvation comes. The offer of salvation to you, but it's only through faith in Christ. That's the only way where the presence of God can be a wonderful thing. But just like the way when you walk from the courtyard to the Holy of Holies, where do you start? You have to start by seeing the reality of your sin. That you're currently, apart from Christ, separated from God. You gotta take ownership of your sin. You need to repent of your sin. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only through faith in him that you enter into the holy of holies and the presence of God becomes a wonderful thing. I appeal to you this morning. Respond to the glorious offer of the gospel in the Lord Jesus so that God's presence can be a glorious thing for you.
To you, dear believer, oh, how I want to encourage you this morning to bask in the glory of God's presence. Just like an airman coming home from war who longs to be with his wife and his kids, carefully planning, massive organization, putting every single detail in place, all of the specifics, just to be in their presence. God has done the same. I mean, all of this was his plan, his idea, him orchestrating all of history with all the details just so little old sinful you could be in his presence for all eternity. How should we respond to that? We should be absolutely overwhelmed that he has loved us that much and we should rejoice on a daily basis because we realize, we see with greater clarity that even though our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. And just like a father who's been gone for a long time, just being in his presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. May we be a people who understand that more deeply as a result of these details, that in God's presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we are grateful for all of these details. And yet, Father, we realize that even as we've read through these chapters, we, we only see in part so hard for us to grasp the immensity and the reality of all that you have put in place that we might understand with greater depth the sufficiency of Christ's death. That our sins, though they are many, your mercy is more. That sinful people can dwell in the presence of a holy God. Father, I pray, I pray for any who are here this morning who have not yet believed in Jesus that they would do that this morning. And I pray for those who have, who have already done so that their joy would be full, that they would be overwhelmed by grace and that they would know that in your presence is fullness of joy. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.